You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. guest today on Foundation Radio is responsible for bringing all of your favorite celebrities and sports entertainers to you, everyone from Hulk Hogan to Chevy Chase. Uh, also known as the Prince of Cards, his new book, Aiming High, How a Prominent Sports and Celebrity Agent Hit Bottom at the Top. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Darren Prince. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the show. We really appreciate it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about who you are as the individual and how you kind of became who you are. Uh, so your career really started with trading baseball cards it sounds like and collecting them right yes when i was 14 years old um i guess for the most part back in 1984 most of my guy friends uh they became you know i guess they outgrew them uh they were a little bit corny they weren't (laughs) cool anymore right and i was just always fascinated with um the statistics on the back of the cards and Growing up with a so-called learning disability, I just took to studying all these stats from, you know, home runs to RBIs to on-base percentage, and it kind of gave me, like, a good feeling of self-worth. It was one of the few things that did at that age, and when they were out of the collecting phase, I had three small jobs, squeezing orange juice at a supermarket, uh, busboying, and um, delivering newspapers. So I took all that extra money, and I started buying everybody's collections, and got this idea one day to talk to my dad about uh, that I needed insurance because I wanted to do what I saw in the local newspaper was a baseball card show. He looked at me like I had three heads because nobody knew what that was at the time. And, uh, you know, he challenged me and said, how do you know people are going to buy these things and, you know, to invest whatever it was, $20, $30 for the table at the time. And I made over $1,000 on that Sunday afternoon and the light bulb went on and that was it. So do you still collect baseball cards or any other? No, cards? you know, I, no? I, I wish I, I really <laughs> yeah. wish I did. But I, when I got out of the industry um, fully, it was probably the mid nineties okay. after I had my memorabilia company and then I started the agency, but it is booming right now. It's at a different level. I, uh, that, that the cards that I handled, I mean, are worth tens of millions of dollars. Wow. I, I had th- I had three Honus Wagner cards during the course of five years. I think the last one I sold for uh, about one hundred and twenty thousand. Wow. And, and back then it was tremendous because yeah. you know I bought I buy the card for eighty or ninety. I flip it a few days later at, at seventeen, eighteen years old, and I make thirty grand on the flip. That's and, unbelievable. You know you don't think you don't think anything of it, and now that same card's you know two million, two and a half million. 
it's, a, it's crazy. The, the, uh, so any, for our listeners that aren't really uh, part of the initiated, the Honus Wagner card is one of the most desirable and valuable baseball yeah. cards that exists. That was part of a set that came out with, it was on tobacco, right? Back in the, what was that? Tobacco. It was the 1909, 1910, T206 tobacco series. And he did not want children buying tobacco because he was an anti-smoker and legally forced them to stop making the card and apparently about 40 of them got in existence wow. and uh you know so there was always a huge backstory that came with that and uh yeah he was a hall of famer but i, I had everything you know the mantle 52 tops oh which is right up there now the legendary rookie card and oh my god uh, i mean I, the, the amount of cards that i handled sometimes it's just uh our head spin when we get into these conversations i, mean, I, I just had like still a- on the business yeah, and it's always the same question. Why didn't you hold one or two? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. when you're in the business, you, you don't think of it. You're yeah. you're buying and flipping. And yeah. Alan, Mr. Main Rosen, who was the biggest name ever, who passed away a couple months before my dad. You know, we used to have this. He created the industry. And we used to say it was about you know turn and burn. You buy, you sell, you yep. buy, you flip, and that's the business you were in. You don't you know you can't afford to hold on to something. It's about moving your money into other money and other deals, and just keep you know reinvesting in the business. So was there any actual card or any memorabilia that you still hold on to just because it's kind of near and dear to you and not like the most expensive or most sought after, just sort of very special? Uh, probably. I mean, this, this is going to sound odd, but Mookie Wilson is my favorite athlete of all time. Okay. Wow. And uh, I, I, the 86 Mets is obviously one of the nice. pinnacles to my childhood and that mm-hmm. game six and what he meant. And yeah. I did have a chance to meet him. Uh, I guess maybe 10, 12 years ago through Brandon Steiner at uh, Steiner Sports. My, one, of, one of my business partners and agents, Nick, arranged it for me as a surprise. And it was incredible because he had this huge line at a mall, and they had me sit next to him. And I'm not somebody that gets starstruck. I've been around the industry my whole life. And, you know, I literally had started having tears in my eyes when I saw the guy because it just brought back those childhood memories. And when Brandon introduced me to him, he knew what a big deal it was. And he goes, this is Darren Prince. He represents Magic Johnson and Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali and Chevy Chase. And he looks at me and the first thing goes, how do you represent all of them? And you're, I'm your biggest, you know, idol. Like he couldn't, <laughs> he, even he couldn't understand. I sat down, I go, look, I know how you got your nickname. Your real name is William Hayward Wilson. I started ripping off stats wow. to him. And he goes, man, he goes, you got to sit down next to me. And, um, <laughs> yeah. So, and then a couple of recent Mookie stories that I'll tell you about was yeah, sure. uh, a friend of mine, Harlan Friedman, when I got honored by Turning Point at, uh, which is the biggest, uh, drug and alcohol rehab in New Jersey. This was, Maybe about two and a half years ago, he works with Mookie now. The next morning I woke up, there was a voicemail from Mookie Wilson congratulating me on the honor. Wow, and then, that's awesome. Uh, t- two months ago, I'm at Charlie Sheen's house, and Charlie's been a client for years. He had to do a signing for a trading card company. Hmm. And somehow it came up that he used to own the ball. Charlie goes upstairs, comes down five minutes later, and he hands me a bat that has Mookie's name on it. Whoa. So I don't know what it is. And he's like... That's the bat used during, um, because it's not the bat, but he used it in the World Series. Wow. And I go, wow, this is amazing. And he looks at me and he goes, it's yours. I'm like, <laughs> wow. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, bro, it's yours. He goes, I had no idea what I'd say anywhere. That wow. is ridiculous. That's incredible. 
One of one yeah. of my favorite things, and kind of going back to the memorabilia part, um, I was reading in the book, which I love, by the way. I, I picked it up. It's available everywhere right now. You can go and get it. It's really quite an incredible read, and we're going to dive into it a little bit more. But um, I've always been fascinated. I'm a bit of a collector myself. I collect comic books and and some signed baseballs. But um, the the Billy Ripken fuckface card. Uh, That's another amazing story. Can you about. can you just briefly because I know you talk about it in the book, but just briefly tell anyone who's not initiated about that card and, I'm and how so gl- I'm it. so glad you brought this up again because <laughs> the end of this story is going to blow you away. So and it happened two weeks ago. Wow. So wow. I was in University of Bridgeport at the time, my freshman year, and I was always a hustler. I was always finding ways to make money because the business was exploding. I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I was going to see my sister at University of Maryland the next weekend. And I figured, look, Baltimore Orioles, let me, let me buy a bunch of team sets at the next show I'm at. You know, Cal was obviously the biggest name. People knew of his brother. He was a rookie, but he wasn't you know, the greatest player. And um, I had a buddy at the time, David Greenhill, um, and he used to have mass volumes of all these current rookies. So I bought a bunch of team sets from him. I went around the room. I probably bought 200 of them, uh, maybe two, three bucks a piece. And I figured, let me flip them for six or seven. I'll make a couple grand. It was at the famous 1989 500 Home Run Club show uh, in Atlantic City. And Pete Rose was one of the co-promoters. They had every living, you know, 500 Home Run Club member, Manuel, Mays, Aaron, Ted Williams, wow. uh, Reggie Jackson. I go back to my parents' house as I'm driving up to college. I drop all my cards off. I got interviewed that weekend by a reporter, Mel Antonin from USA Today. I'm pretty sure he's still around because Reggie Jackson came over to my table and bought his rookie card from me, which was a pretty cool experience. I can't even imagine. And here I am, 19 years old. Reggie comes over. And it was the best because they asked me if I would take like $50 less or something. Of course, I'm like, I'm not going to negotiate with Reggie Jackson. (laughs) So whatever it was he gave me, I I took it. I was just thrilled that we took a photo. So I go back to to college, and that Monday morning, on the front page of the USA Today, Billy Ripken card mayored by an obscenity. (laughs) And my boys, my roommate, these guys start screaming, and they're like, Prince, you're in the USA Today. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, there's a front page story about this baseball card. And apparently it says fuck face on the back handle. I'm like, what? So I go, wait a minute. I I thought I was dreaming. And so I read the article and it's talking about like, you know, a handful of us young uh, teenagers that are like prodigies in the baseball card business that built up tremendous mail order companies and trade show companies. And now I can't think about going to school. I'm like, wait a minute. I swear, I, I think I have a lot of these cards. So I blow off school, I get in my car, I drive two hours to my parents' house. My dad sees me going into the garage where everything was stored. And he goes, what the hell are you doing home right now? You're supposed to be in class. <laughs> and I go, no, 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 dad, you have no idea. And I'm sweating. And I go through the box, I pull out the first set, and I'm telling him what's happening. Now he's opening one of the team sets because awesome. <laughs> he can't believe it either in the in the article it said there was no internet back then that the cards were trading between 100 and 500 dollars each wow and as i go through with the first one sure enough right there fuck face every <laughs> single one of them i had i probably had about 200 of them and i was paying my roommate and somebody else on my floor not to go to school that week because the phone lines were ringing so much at school and I had Wall Street uh, 
bankers that were coming to the school buying the courage for $1,000 a piece to give them away as gifts and gags because the market just exploded. That's it went ridiculous. absolutely bonkers. And yeah, I think we made a couple hundred thousand dollars in a matter of a week off of that. And the craziest part of this story was that an inquiry about a month ago from a promoter about Billy Ripken coming to the National Sports Collectors Convention, uh, which is in Chicago this year. That's the big one. And we always have a lot of our guys going there. They sign. This year we have Hulk and Dennis Rodman. I tracked down Billy Ripken's phone number through a mutual friend. Billy Ripken called me last week. And <laughs> to have him on the phone was the funniest thing. I'm sure. He had no interest in being involved. He said it's a part of his life, which I respect that. Sure. You know, look, obviously it's not a shining moment, but right, right. he's like, I appreciate it. If there's any other opportunities, keep in touch with me. And I so wanted to thank him like a hundred times because <laughs> if it wasn't for him, that money never would have been made. <laughs> but that is great. I didn't think it was appropriate, so I kept my mouth shut. But I was like, this is pretty wild. That I got the guy on the phone right now. Full circle. That is so crazy, man. That is really, it's 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 one of those things where you just, it's such un, an unexpected surprise and how really... Uh, sort of surreal those kind of things can be when all of a sudden something so ridiculous happens and it becomes this major story and now here you are with how many of them did you actually have in your possession i i, I had 200 of them wow. oh my god that is just you know, and, and i remember I, I don't remember when but at some point obviously the market fell out sure it was a novelty but i got out i mean i sold i think i was down to like my last 30 and a buddy of mine that I did a lot of business, but I did him what, what apparently was a big favor at the time, and I think he paid me maybe three, four hundred apiece. Wow! So, real quick about that though, I, I just have a quick question. I've seen the picture before, and I've always laughed at it. I never really knew the story behind it. Was it Billy just trying to pull one over on the card company, or was somebody messing with him? Do you no, know the story behind apparently that? he was the prankster on the team. Okay. And he was trying to, you know, play out some of the other guys and okay. joke around, but it was never meant so he to thought, obviously be part of a shoot yeah. for the trading cards. He it thought, was like, editors just would a cut bat, it. yes, that yeah. they were using in batting practice. Yeah. Now, certainly not on the game either. Right. <laughs> and when he couldn't find his bat, the bat boy, from what I was told, <laughs> grabbed whatever bat he had, and that was it. And clearly he didn't look at the bottom of the bat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that that's a great moment to have happen to him. Oh my god! I mean, I, I, I read you, like Billy. the Menendez brothers are now on a card that's red hot. I saw online. Oh my I don't god. know if you guys know that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of that. They're in the background in like a so, action shot. Really? Yeah. Yep. Holy crap! Menendez, yeah, Menendez know, yeah, yeah. brothers are like in the couple front rows, and you can see them. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. That's crazy. So you're basically hey, it's great for people in the card yeah. industry because yeah. it you know gets Absolutely. a lot of interest. Sends you to you school. Know? So you're basically, yeah, so you're, you're in school, so you're in high school, you're in college, and you're making just like hand over fist money, trading the baseball cards, selling them and making this, these huge investments. Um, so you're basically, you're kind of become this, this celebrity uh, pretty much overnight. When did you start working with Muhammad Ali? Like kind of take me through the process of how that, that process well, began. When I, when I got out of the card business, the reason I got out one day, I went to one of these national conventions and I was exhibiting and. I noticed there was a line at like six in the morning wrapped around the corner. I, I had no idea why. And I started asking questions and they said, Oh, because you've got Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio and, um, you know, all, all these, you know, iconic athletes. And 
I thought that was the most amazing thing to me. Like you could actually wait in line, you, uh, you know, invest in some collectibles and have your favorite guy sign and take a picture with them. Yeah. So as good as the baseball card business was, I was like, this is like actually much more fun. And through a mutual friend of mine, Jeff Hamilton, the famed leather jacket designer, I was actually just with him the other night. He introduced me to Harlan Warner, who is Muhammad Ali's agent, is one of my closest friends. And um, we knew each other of each other from the baseball card days. And Harlan just took his time. I called him up one day. I said, look, I want to expand. I want to kind of evolve and I want to get involved in autograph signings. I want to book them for you and Muhammad. I want to do some of my own. I want to, you know, build up my own memorabilia company. I've got the reach. I've got the database. Um, I've got the resources. Tell me how it works. And he took me under his wing, explained how it worked. And we did the first one, I think, in May of 1994 in um, Boston in a hotel suite. And it was just a life-changing day. Uh, it was yeah. absolutely incredible. I mean, and I met him briefly earlier, Ali, but as I wrote about in the book, right. uh, in Arlington, Texas, at like seven or eight in the morning. But it was very quickly outside of a hotel. It was a pretty wild experience. And so, but to have him in a hotel suite for three or four hours, and he was very talkative, even though he had the Parkinson's, he was able to carry you know pretty much full conversations, do magic tricks. He had this incredible way that that he would levitate. That people didn't believe me I, I that read this that would in happen and, until they actually saw it themselves. Um, it was just, it was an experience every time I was with him that the minute you walk out of the room, you feel like you just snapped out of a dream. I can't, even, a, I can't even imagine. He had a wow factor that I've never seen to this day that I think I'll never see to this day. And, um, you know, I obviously work with some of the most revered icons and celebrities in the world, but Ali was different. Ali was just magical. He, you know, it was the, the celebrities, celebrities were in awe of him. And then from there, I, I figured it would make a lot of sense to, to make a play to try to sign an exclusive deal with Joe Frazier. That was what I was going to do. Because now I had the relationship yeah. with Ali. And, you know, I started realizing about the, all the animosity and the anger between the two and the hatred. And, you know, there was a lot of rules that Joe and Marvis said early on. That, you know, if, if, if an item comes to them signed by Ali first, Joe wants a lot more money. Wow. Um, so people started learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he just didn't want to sign it because he knew, you know, I'll, uh, you know, it, it was a respect thing to him. He wanted to sign it first, and then he realized, okay, well, I'm Joe Frazier. I'm worth good money on my own, but when I'm signing something signed by Ali, it's a different ballgame. Wow. Did um, Ali have so a similar could, rule? Know, what was that? Did Ali have a similar rule? If something Ali, Ali didn't have the same rule, okay. but, you know, if, if we ever put something in front of him signed by Joe first, it was funny. He would always take a shot at Joe or, yeah. or look at sign it and he'd grumble. He'd like mumble, like, oh, the gorilla, you know, <laughs> just like different, like always take shots at him. But, right. you know, and I was an Ali guy early on in those days. Yeah. So I would kind of laugh with him until I started my agency. But, you know, from there, I, I, I was put in touch with Magic Johnson's uh, rep at the time by Harlan, and, and I got to Magic, and then Jeff introduced me to uh, Rodman's agent at the time, Dwight, and I just it just started expanding. I got right. to Pamela Anderson's publicist on my own through a mutual friend. I got to Chevy Chase, and before you knew it, we had six or seven of the most iconic figures under contract for these memorabilia signings, and the business was good for a couple of years. It was great. That's I, I, one of my favorite stories in the book is how you essentially you brokered the truce in a way between Ali and Frazier. Tell me to me, like when I think about the story and I think about how I don't even know if I can come up with the right word iconic, I guess the their feud and their their matches and their their rivalry was 
And you are the guy that's responsible for essentially in a lot of ways ending that feud. How did that process begin? And in the moment, I know you, you do talk about it in your book and about how it was almost this out of, out of body experience, but as an individual, not even just as Darren Prince, the, the, the star agent, but just as the person, what's going through your head as that is happening and you're watching it in real time. You know, it is far and away the most, you know, incredible professional experience you'll, I'll, I'll ever have. You know, there'll, there'll never be anything like that again. And Harlan, you know, God bless him, was hugely instrumental. It was bittersweet because, you know, here's a guy that brought me into his role with Ali, but he was stuck in Vegas. And we mm-hmm. tried several times before Will Smith um, and Lonnie reached out and they wanted me and Joe and Marvis to ride in a limousine with them on the red carpet up to the red carpet of the Ali premiere in LA. And me and Marvis got so excited. Like, this is it. This is the moment. And Joe didn't want to do it. Joe like got very angry and started cursing everybody out and be like, I don't trust them. And you realize how deep the trust was because if he wants to meet me, it's got to be on my turf in Philadelphia. And I was like, Oh my God, I was devastated. I thought that was it. And then a couple years later when the all-star game was in Philadelphia, Harlan and I didn't even talk about it. But Lonnie, and at the time, uh, who, who since passed Muhammad's best friend, Howard Bingham, the famed photographer, uh, they must have had a conversation with Harlan. And he called me up because, look, Lonnie wants you to call her. Because I think they want to try to do this tonight if you and Joe are around. And, my, I mean, the feeling inside my stomach and my heart palpitated. I was like, oh, my gosh. And so I called her up, and she's like, Muhammad and I and Howard would love for you and Joe and, and Marvis to come have dinner with us in Muhammad's suite. And I got so incredibly nervous, you know, because I, I, I didn't know what Joe was going to say. And it could not have happened any easier. I asked him. I was with him at the time. He goes, all right, boss, man, let's go see the butterfly. Because that's what we would call him. And <laughs> I'm like, this is the craziest thing ever. And my father, who's since passed, was such an integral part of it because he would talk to Ali when he was with him. And then he would talk to Joe and this went on for seven or eight years trying to bridge the gap to let them see that they can inspire the world and show others that if they can get along and make peace, so can other countries. And they both love that little hook to it. And, uh, five hours later it went down and, uh, it was just, you know, I remember knocking on the door and Lonnie opening it up and giving Joe a big hug. And I was there with Marvis and my boy, Nikki C and, uh, we just could not believe it was happening. And Muhammad was sitting on the couch. He was very bloated, uh, the medication for the Parkinson's. You know, he, he must have been eating a lot. And it was hard for him to get up. And Joe walked over, and uh, you just see Muhammad's eyes get so big and so excited. And Joe kind of locked in his back leg and grabbed both his big hands and went under Ollie's armpit to help him up. And Ollie got up and just threw his whole body like a little child over Joe's shoulder and put his head on his shoulder and shut his eyes. And, I mean, the tears started flowing because Lonnie looks at Joe and said, Joe, thank you, because Muhammad's just found peace. And I'm, like, sitting there just, I cannot believe a 32-year-old Jewish kid from middle-class Livingston, New Jersey, is sitting here in this room where presidents, world leaders, any celebrity you can think of would be in absolute awe and give anything for this privileged opportunity. And then we had dinner, and it was just, it was such an incredibly special, you know, couple hours that uh, 
like I said, a privilege is an understatement. Um, I have your book open looking at the photographs from that night. Uh, and it's just, uh, that story is just unbelievable. Like I just can't even, I can't even muster up words to think about how, how impactful that moment must have been not just for you, but being in that moment and being the two of them uh, settling this and squashing this after 30 years of such heavy resentment and anger and, and whatever it is towards each other. It's just, it's unbelievable. And, and now you are essentially at the, the pinnacle of your, uh, of your, you know, I mean, this is the Zenith, right? I mean, it can't get much better than this and all, no, all this is, I, you know, and I, I mean, I woke up the next morning, you know, we had plans to go to the all-star game with Joe yep. and, uh, the NBA calls me, the head of marketing, mm-hmm. and they said, um, Darren, we, we heard some rumors that Joe and Muhammad had dinner last night. And I, I don't want to say anything because I knew clearly this was a private moment. And they said, whether it's true or not, would it be possible to sit you and Joe near Muhammad at the game? Huh. And uh, now I'm like, really my heart's palpitating and I was like look if you want to sit them near each other or close to each other I think Joe would be okay with it I don't want to say anything to Joe because first off I wanted to see the moment unfold in front of 120 countries around the world to billions of people and I I didn't want to like kind of prep Joe in case Joe was more of a private guy he wasn't Ali and and for his sake I wanted the world to see Joe in his one of his finest moments um sitting there with Ali if it was really going to go down. And that was just, you know, a whole nother experience because now me, him, and my boy Nick walk in and I'm in seat three, Joe's in four, Nick's in five, and to my right is seat two and one, dead center court. And I got Magic and Cookie to the left, Justin Timberlake stating Britney Spears on the other side. They come over to Joe. Puppy's there with his son Justin at the time. He's like a child. And they come over to say hello to Joe. And all of a sudden... You hear the chance, as you do any time most people knew Ali was in the room. Ali, Ali, Ali. And Joe leans over to me. He goes, the butterfly here? I say, yeah, champ, he's walking in over there. Security's escorting him right now. And he sits down right next to me. Wow. So Muhammad's to my right, Howard Bingham's in seat one. Muhammad, you know, puts his hands on my shoulder, grabs Joe's hands, gives him like a, gives him like a little bit of a hug. And now I'm feeling like a complete idiot because Howard's in seat one, Muhammad's in two, I'm in three, and Joe's in four. I'm like, why am I sitting next to Muhammad? And <laughs> as I'm thinking that, Joe leans over to me, and this is when the tears just flow. He goes, he used to call me boss man. He goes, hey, boss man. I go, yeah. He goes, would you mind switching with me? And I'm wow. like, oh, my God. <laughs> Even now talking about it, I was just like, yeah. it'd be the biggest honor of my life. And I got up and... That's when the flashbulbs went, and I mean, Alicia Keys, and you saw people going out of their minds, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Alan Iverson, they, they just knew that these two kings just took over, you know, one of the biggest all-star, you know, experiences out of all four major sports, and it became bigger than the game, and uh, what happened during those next three hours, the stories I heard, the conversations they were having, it's all in my book, it was just beyond like I got goosebumps while you were telling that story, like yeah. listening to yeah. it. And I can feel I, when you talk about it, I can feel the emotion and even reading it in the book. And what's so fascinating to me about your story and about this story is while all of this is happening, you are hiding this 
massive drug addiction from everyone. Yes. And yep. you tell in the book, you, you talk about this in the book, and, and again, for those that are listening, we're here with Darren Prince. Um, his book is Aiming High, How a Prominent Sports and Celebrity Agent Hit Bottom at the Top. Um, so you're there at the All-Star Game 2002. This massive event happens, I mean, in front of the world, and you hide away from the cameras and you pop some pills. And Yes. Take me through the beginning stages of when your addiction began and kind of walk me through how it started and, and, and how it became so ingrained in your life. The addiction started when I was 14. I was at sleepaway camp and I had horrible stomach pains one night and the counselor took me to the infirmary and the nurse gave me this green liquid and a clear cloth syrup cup and it tasted horrible. But as I was walking across the softball field, all those insecurities I had from, you know, having a so-called learning disability, not feeling a part of being different, feeling socially awkward, went away. And I got back to the bunk. I felt like Superman. I was the cool guy, the funny guy, the talkative one. All the guys wanted to hang with me and talk with me. I got the courage to go to the bunk next door and flirt with girls for the first time in my life. I knew I had no idea what was going on, but I knew I needed this feeling all the time. And I woke up the next day, did all my activities, thinking nothing of it. And that very next night, I'm lying in the bunk with no stomach pain, but I'm looking up at the sky. I'm thinking about that feeling the night before, saying, wow, that feeling was amazing. And I look at the counter and I said, I lean over. I said, man, my stomach is killing me. We've got to go back to the infirmary. And I did this for three straight weeks, every single night, that green liquid. And until my mom and dad came up on visitation day and found that I was taking liquid Demerol. And that was the end of that. And then a few months later, I'm at a dentist appointment getting my wisdom teeth removed in New Jersey. And one in three kids, when I present and speak all the time, I stress this, that goes to a dentist appointment, gets opiates, become addicts. I was one of the three. Thinking nothing of it, my mom gave me these two white pills, and it was heaven in a bottle. And all those feelings, again, from sleepaway camp came right back. I'm on the phone. I'm the confident one, the cool one, the talkative one. Two days later, the pills ran out. I was devastated. What do I do? I go back downstairs to my mom. I'm holding the side of my cheek. I put on the crocodile tears. I go, Mom, my tooth is killing me. We've got to go back right now to the dentist. I think I have a horrible infection. She panics. Who wants to see their son suffer or, any, or their children? Takes me back to the dentist. You know, the crocodile tears are still going. The dentist doesn't know what's going on, but he writes another prescription for two more days. And uh, for the next five or six years, now I'm making money, a lot of money. And drugs, alcohol, whatever it was, you name it, I did it. And there was no repercussions until I was 21. And I was arrested four times in six months. But never once did I look at myself and say I had a problem. It's always somebody else's fault. Wrong place at the wrong time. The police never should have been there. I was with the wrong crew of people. And, uh, you know, eventually, I like to say that was once living to use turned out to using to live. And it started me in the industry. It did make me fearless. There was a point where I was unstoppable. And when I became an agent, it didn't matter who it was, the networking, the events, the social gatherings, I was going to do what I needed to do, talk to who I needed to talk to and be unstoppable and fearless. But like I said, it turned on me. And I don't know when that happened until the point where I didn't want to live anymore. And I had my first overdose in 2007 at the NBA All-Star Game weekend in February. So here I am five years later from the Ollie Fraser experience, 
and uh, in Vegas this time, and I had a horrible case of bronchitis. So for me, when I had bronchitis, I used to get excited because there's an opiate-based cough syrup called Tussianex, which is highly addictive. You can only get it from a doctor. So I called the doctor. I made a house call. He wrote a prescription for Tussinex, Vicodin, and some antibiotic. I went to the pharmacy. Mind you, this weekend was about celebrating a TV show deal that I just negotiated with my uh, one of my agents, Steve, for Dennis Rodman with Mark Cuban's TV network. But I had other plans because the bronchitis and the addiction took over and became a priority. So on the way back from CVS, I called my then wife. I said, order me three vodka, Red Bull, and cranberries. I'm going to get ready and go out. I took half the Tussinex bottle couple of Vicodins down two of the drinks within two, three minutes. I'm on the floor, heart palpitating, sweating, chills in and out of consciousness, foaming at the mouth here. Everybody thought I had it all, but you know, I was ultimately looking for an outside fix in my life. That was really an inside job. And, uh, paramedics came to the room and uh, needle in my arm, oxygen mask on my face. And, I never made it out that night and woke up at four in the morning, looked at myself. I said, you sick bastard. Who, who does this with everything they have going on in their life? Who, who, who lives a life like this? And with that, I finished the rest of the Tussinex and I chopped up a couple of Vicodins and I snorted them and I went back to bed because to me, it was the vodka, Red Bull and cranberry, the drinks that caused the overdose it wasn't the other stuff. You know, they say the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And uh, the next week, I finally got some courage to tell the addiction, addiction psychiatrist in town what was going on. He said I was an opiate addict. He put me on something called Suboxone. I was on a mood stabilizer at the time, an antidepressant, um, sleeping pills, um, drinking a couple of days a week, uh, you know, to the point of blackout. You know, ultimately, opiates were really what, what, what did it to me in the end. And uh, I finally had my awakening. My whole life changed on July 2nd, 2008, after 23 years of hell of living this dark, dark, sick, sick secret. And um, that was because my uncle and his then girlfriend, Andrea, were in the 12-step fellowship for addicts and alcoholics. And uh, she never met me before. She knew something was up. She came into town to visit my mom my uncle's sister for the first time and they stopped by to see me and she just saw the look of death in my face and said, is everything okay? I said, no, I'm not. And she asked what was wrong. And it's one of those moments I, I felt comfortable with her never meeting her before. And she said some things to me that changed my life. She goes, do you realize you're an addict and your life is unimaginable? I said, yes. She goes, do you realize you're powerless over this disease? I said, for sure. She goes, most importantly, do you realize that no matter what you've accomplished in the outside world, that addiction does not discriminate. It does not care if you're from Park Avenue or Park Bench or you went to Yale or jail. It'll take you to your knees and six feet under if you're lucky, but it'll keep you above ground if you're unlucky. And I said, 100%, I'm desperate. And coming on this detox plan 48 hours later when I was supposed to you know, get off the Suboxone, I lost, lost my shit, excuse my French, I called them up. Uh, I was in my apartment in New York City with my then wife. I said, I'm calling the doctor. I can't deal with this anymore. I'm shaking. I'm trembling. I have heart palpitations. You know, I feel like I want to kill myself. I'm, I'm, I'm getting what I really want to get. And they said, no, no, no. You've got to get to a 12-step meeting and put your hand up and tell these people you're sick and suffering. You're in New York City. There's a million of them. Go online. Yeah. I said, I can't do it. The judge sent me those things when I was 21. I can't identify with those people. They're not me. 
and I hung up the phone and went into the bathroom to take these non-narcotic anxiety pills and out came two Vicodins. Now, my then wife and I thought we cleared out the medicine cabinet of all the opiates and uh, we were wrong. So for a split second, it seemed like all the relief I needed and a gift from God. But then I heard something on my right side that said, it's a curse from the devil. And uh, I fell to my knees. Never ever in my life did that happen. Here, all the success, all the stuff we just talked about, I've begged and called out to God like I never did in my life. And I said, take these chains off, take the money, the notoriety. I don't care. I need a single day of freedom. I'm so sick of living this life. And, uh, you know, he heard me because I heard a voice. I got you when you're ready. And I stood up and it wasn't me. And I flushed these pills down the toilet and I wound up on the computer three minutes later, found a 12 step meeting and there was no Uber at the time. So I jumped in a cab and as I'm in the cab, I look up at the sky and I said, oh my God, for the first time in my life in 23 years, I wanted to stay sober more than I wanted to get high. And by the grace of God, that day, July 2nd, 2008, is my sobriety date. And uh, I walked into a church basement with 150, 200 addicts and alcoholics that were all of a hopeless state of mind like me. I threw my hand right up with no shame and they said, is anybody new? And uh, that's when my life began because they... They, they showed me an easier, softer way to live life. They, these people that I didn't even know, these spiritual brothers and sisters, started to love me before I even knew how to love myself. And, um, you know, through one day at a time, became a week, became a month, became a year. I realized that the most important thing when you get this gift is to give it away, which is why pretty much I wrote Amy High, to help other people to show that recovery does exist from addiction, alcoholism, substance abuse, and uh just been the greatest journey in my life. Um, doesn't mean challenges don't happen. I lost Joe and Muhammad in sobriety. I lost my dad in sobriety. But I was able to show up to every one of their funerals sober and present, you know, and, mm -hmm. and a strong spiritual being, understanding that it's about being in the moment. And uh, challenges happen for each and every one of us. But, you know, through my spirituality, my perspective and perception has changed on everything in life. So it's given me this whole new set of lenses in my eyes where I understand that most of the challenges in my life, as with most of us, we have luxury problems in today's world, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just been, uh, like I said, it's been the greatest thing I've done for myself for the longest amount of time. We spent the first 15, 16, whatever, 17 minutes talking about the celebrity and the business, but yeah. this is my biggest accomplishment in my life. Nothing comes close to sustaining spiritual sobriety one day at a time and having the platform now to help other people with this, with this gift that I've been given. One of the things that I, I, I took away from the book, um, was, you know, specifically two of your, I would say, arguably two of your biggest clients, Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman, um, each of whom who have gone through their own really low points and reading your, story of telling them and talking to them and, and explaining this and, and how supportive they were of you and how much lo how the, the loyalty that, that your team has for you and the, and the ability to get behind you and say, yeah, man, we all fall down. Let's, let's, let's keep this going. We're, we're here for you. I just thought that was, that was unbelievable. That was a, that was a really quite amazing thing to read. Um, you know, that, that, yeah, that Ma Ma magic, jo magic, Johnson magic Johnson too. Yeah. Top of the list. Yeah, yeah he, he was at the top of the list and a year and a half before I got sober and I called him and I was going through some challenging times at, at, in my life at that moment. And, you know, the other things he said were just 
you know, unfortunate situations that'll pass. And when I told him about this and my opiate addiction, that's what really, you know, shook him up. And he said, you've got to get sober, man. You've got to get clean. Uh, I don't want to lose you. Uh, you know, obviously there's, you know, the business relationship is at stake. And uh, eventually I got there. It took me a little bit. But um, to give you an idea about how supportive he is, he's the one that wrote the forward of my book. Yep. So he doesn't do that often. The last one I think he did was for Larry Bird. Wow. And uh, he's just a very, very, very special man that changed my life. I wanted to quickly also talk about, since we were talking a little bit about Dennis Rodman, um, I wanted to kind of briefly touch on the North Korea event. Because, I, again, I, I find that so fascinating that someone... Uh, the most unexpected individual sort of becomes this national, international, uh, you know, peacemaker in a way um, with the the leader of the North Korean government. Um, take me through that story and how that began and where the seeds sort of got planted and how Dennis ends up in North Korea. So it's a crazy story. I got a call in, I would say probably towards the end of 2012 from Vice Media that they wanted Dennis to come with the, go with the Harlem Globetrotters to North Korea. And they wanted him to be a part of the documentary that they're filming with this exhibition basketball game and, uh, you know, help produce the doc. And, you know, we go back and forth. It wasn't really a money thing. It was more about the exposure and the, I guess, the historic opponent about it. And they kept giving me dates and it kept getting canceled. And I wrote about this in the book and I was getting very frustrated because I would tell Dennis about it. And then, we thought like, oh, this experience, you know, who knows if it's even going to happen. Nobody really knew much about North Korea. And uh, finally, the fourth time around, about, I think it was six months later, um, we got clearance for him to go. And I had no idea what was going on. So I go downstairs in my office and I talk to Steve, who I've known since I was 10, who runs my, my agency. And I told him I was so excited because Sai, the rapper from South Korea, was the biggest thing in the world. So I said to Steve, Dennis is going to North Korea. Maybe he'll meet Sai. And he goes, what? He goes, where is he going? And he goes, I, I said, North Korea. I go, how cool is this? So I was like, it's, he's like, bro, you're out of your mind. He's not going to North Korea. He must be going to the South. And I show him the contract. And he looks at me. He goes, are you an idiot? He goes, this, because North Korea. And he starts telling me about it. Dennis and I didn't know. So it was actually pretty comical at first. Wow. And so we both call up Dennis. And we told him about Kim Jong-un. And how this, you know, they sent us pictures of him in a boarding school wearing his jersey as a teenager and a 91 Bulls jersey. To Dennis's credit, he's like, dude, just make sure I'm safe and get in and out. I'll go. He goes, I'm going to meet. He's like, I'm going to meet this motherfucker. He goes, trust me, <laughs> because I'm going to meet him and something real cool could happen. And maybe I can open up communication between that country and, uh, you know, and America and other countries. And right. I gave him credit with no fear. And, uh, the day before he left, uh, he was in Beijing because you have to stop over and spend the night. And one of the executive producer calls me and he goes, get ready for the biggest media hate your client and probably any celebrity has had in a very long time. And I was like, well, it's kind of hard to beat the wedding dress situation. And he looks at me and, 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 he, and he, 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 he on the phone. He goes, Darren, this is going to dwarf the wedding dress. There was, there was no social media back then. He goes, oh, when man. I tell you, my friend. You're going to wake up in five hours because of the time difference. And I woke up, I set my alarm at four in the morning because uh, I was living in New Jersey at the time. And I tell you, I mean, I never saw more text messages, more inboxes, interview requests. Um, 
I go right online and Yahoo main story has the epic photo of Dennis and Kim Jong. I'm sitting there at the basketball game, clapping next to each other. And, oh. uh, yeah, it, it, it was surreal. It was pretty. No. Yeah. It was pretty, uh, remarkable and historic. And then you end up going with Dennis on his fourth trip to North Korea. Tell me, I mean, I can't even, I know I've only really ever heard Eric Bischoff tell his story about being in North Korea and landing and just this sea of yep. nothing, yep. right? I mean, is that, yeah, that's Bischoff's pretty close. a good friend. We've talked about it. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, uh, we, uh, yeah, you know, so we put together the exhibition game with the, you know, 10 retired NBA players and obviously these guys all want to be there. So I went and, um, Look, I get what Dennis is talking about now because they show you what they want you to see and they treat you a certain way um, that they want you to go back and tell people. So all we know is what we know. So when he sounds like he's defending, it's not defending. He's being authentic about it. Like he right. and my boy Chris Volvolo, who really has done all the heavy lifting uh, since that very first trip, he's the one that organizes with Professor Joe Tilleringer you see them together. It's like the three amigos. They, they do so much groundwork before they go out there and they meet with, you know, North Korean you know, delegates in, 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 in the city. And there's so much work that they do. And they've got this very, very special relationship and a special bond. So when I went on that fourth trip, I experienced it because even as a couple of his people took me back to the airport, um, they said, we hope you go back to America and, and and tell friends and family that you have new friends in North Korea, Mr. Darren. That's what they were calling me. And they said, if we ever in New York, we'd like to meet with you. And um, they said it. They said, you have friends forever in North Korea. And it was so authentic. And I said to them, I'm like, you know, I'm like, guys, it's such a shame because in a way our schools and our culture, like your culture and your schools are taught that each other is such the enemy. So through tradition, whether it's true or not, we don't have a chance because everybody is under the impression that we're the devil to each other. And, you know, how to break that cycle, I have no idea. But to experience this with you guys, and you can tell as I'm talking to them, we all, the three of us had tears in our eyes because it was pretty emotional. And so, you know, I get it. The problem is I told Dennis, you have to kind of lighten up a little bit on it because when you come back and 99.99% of the world has no clue what you're talking about, either have to word it a little bit better or just explain why you always seem to talk so highly of the experience and him and his people and his family, because you get to see a different side, you know? Yeah. One thing I wanted to touch on again, you were talking about uh, your sobriety being the biggest accomplishment uh, of your life. One thing that the quote that you put in your book that stuck out to me was getting sober was a personal choice but staying sober was a public responsibility. Um, we have a mutual friend, Brandon Novak, um, who does a ton of work outreach with his, you know, sobriety. Your friend, and, and yeah, yeah, he's yeah. he is uh, he is one of the most am remarkable and amazing people I've had the pleasure of having in my life. And knowing where he is now, seeing where he came from, and and knowing the real Brandon now is just just an unbelievable experience. But. Um, uh, how rewarding is it for you to be able to go to these places, go to schools and go to events and, and talk about your story and, and feel as though you're making a difference in young people's lives? It's the greatest privilege of my life. I mean, two weeks ago, I was up at Chris Heron's wellness center. He invited me. He's another one of my spiritual brothers and I'm part of a, a fraternity of, I call them those badass Mount Rushmore 
game changers in this world because we're all doing it. And they inspire me, the Tim Ryan, the Domans of the world, um, you know, Brandon Novak, Chris Heron, Ryan Hampton, um, Greg Williams. I mean, it's like every one of us, um, we're all like doing it. We're all out there. Randy Grimes. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And then, you know, the woman, Anna David, my publisher, who's, you know, got 18 years, we just live and breathe this um, 24-7 because we know when we put it first, everything else falls into place in this world. And, you know, to get a reaction from people within a room that I do, where they're ready from whatever God-given words came out of my mouth in that moment, when I spoke or when I presented, whether it was at a rehab, a corporation, a high school, a college, and in that moment, they're ready. And I could see that look of desperation that turns into the gift of desperation. And I can tell them what worked for me and possibly even send them to Banyan Treatment uh, Center, which I'm a rep for, and get them right into a rehabilitation. It, it is, you can't put it into words. I mean... Yeah, it's just, uh, it, 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 it's a privilege beyond. I mean, as great as this inspiring and uplifting and incredible as the Ollie Fraser experience was, there's nothing like being able to change somebody's life in that moment and save their life because I found my purpose through my pain. I took my bottom and turned it into my beginning. And it's not what I do to to get sober, it's what I do to stay sober. I mean, two hours from now, I'm going to a 12-step meeting. It's, uh, you know, it's, 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 like I said, it's the greatest thing I've done for myself for the longest amount of time. And uh, the spiritual component, when I speak to groups, even that are in addicts, and I'll give you guys a few, and I set it at the Banyan event that me and Brandon just spoke at a few weeks ago, that life is now about meaning what I say, not saying it mean. You know? Yeah. Um, kind of staying in a place of peace as often as possible where I'd rather feel all right than right. Yeah. We all have issues. We all have people that can rub us the wrong way, but if you just keep your mouth quiet and you kind of just, you know what? I'm not going to engage those little techniques. Your life will be so peaceful that you don't get an emotional hangover where you got to apologize. You're pissed off at yourself. I try to understand people now instead of me being understood. You know, it takes me out of myself. And I know my, my brain works still kind of a little screwy, but I'm not responsible for my thoughts in my brain. I'm responsible for how long I want to think those thoughts. And now with almost 11 years sober, I've got the tools and the techniques to know how to get out of my own life. And a lot of times it's doing service work. It's just helping others. Whether they have addiction issues or not, we all have friends and family members that are struggling with other areas of their life. Try doing service work and helping other people when you're all caught up in your own head and you think you have a lot of crap going on. Tell me that doesn't help each and every one of us, you know? Yeah. Uh, so first, I just want to say, you know, for all of your work that you're doing with helping people, I just want to say thank you very much. Um, I feel like a lot of people in this area around Philadelphia, we have a lot of uh, people affected by it directly, indirectly. I work, my work takes me into Kensington. Kensington has one of the biggest open air opiate markets in the country. Um, so I see a lot of really nasty stuff and I can just tell you a lot of the work that you're doing is very, very important and a lot of people still need a lot of help. So I would like to thank you personally for that. It's, I've never had an opioid problem, but I know there are hundreds of thousands of people out there that need your help. So thank you very much, sir. Um, no, no problem. And, 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 yeah. and a couple things I just want to plug while you guys have, me. Ahead, you know, sure. I make myself up. 
I make myself available. Uh, there's a, a number that people can call that I get direct access to them for Bannon, which is um, 888-6-DARREN, D-A-R-R-E-N. So it's 8886-DARREN, D-A-R-R-E-N. Awesome. And anybody that needs help, you know, I always make myself available. If they need treatment, we, we find a way to get them the treatment they need, whether they could afford it or not. And uh, my website, which is officialdarrenprince.com, and they can follow me on Instagram, which is at agent underscore DP. I do just as much posting about my sobriety as I do about my business, and I cannot tell you how many people have gravitated my Instagram, and I get inboxes every single day. Right. And uh, that's just amazing because it's private at that point. You know, I know there's still a stigma. There's yeah. still the stain. There's still the embarrassment. But to me, the strength and the courage comes from wanting the help, and that's really when your life begins, when you're able to you know, acknowledge and have the acceptance that something's going on, that you just don't like the person that you're becoming or the person that you've been. What is next? You know, you got your book out. Any more uh, big events coming up for you? Anything going back to North Korea? Uh, I mean, they're always in talks for Dennis and Bell are always working on that to, to plan another trip back there. You know, as far as me, the business really takes care of itself. We're always at different networking events. I had magic with Jeff Bezos a couple of days ago, you know, the richest man in the world, oh, for yeah. a big Amazon event yep. in, uh, in, in, in Vegas, which he said was absolutely remarkable. We spoke for 30 minutes two days ago. Um, and uh, for me, it's really about the recovery. I mean, that's it. You know, there's opportunities to do another book. I'm kind of just, you know, taking it easy. Now it was a lot of work to do the first one and enjoying all the keynotes and speaking engagements that are coming in and taking advantage of that because that, that's what makes me the happiest, you know, just being in front of people and be able to, you know, share my truth and never feel so comfortable talking about the uncomfortable. That's great. Which, uh, I think people, I think people could feel that energy when I'm up there presenting and, and that's what, that's what, you know, continues for me on my journey to build that self-esteem that I never had for such a long period of my life, my life, when you do those esteemable acts, that's what continues to make Darren Prince whole and keeps me on the mission that God uh, wants me to be on. You know, for so many years, I thought I needed God in my life uh, early on in sobriety. And I started getting these signs. No, no, no. I got to get out there and use my platform. God needs me. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Radio is recorded and produced by Adam Barnard and Sam Kreps. Our intro and outro is produced by Dumb Ugly. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Foundation underscore radio. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Foundation Radio Pod. This has been a Foundation Radio production.